Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as Scott said, my name is Josie Barton. Oh, I'm going to put this down here. And I am so glad to be with you this morning, uh, just a week before Christmas. Uh, last, or less than a week ago, as I was writing this sermon, I had a, um, a very different introduction all planned out. It was going to be all about Nicolas Cage, in case you are wondering. And I was going to ask you to consider whether he was a good actor or a bad actor. And then I was going to make connections to the Bible and the Christmas story, and it was going to be great. But then my kids got pink eye. Now, I can connect the dots for you because pink eye in and of itself doesn't really explain why I'm not discussing the pros and cons of Nicolas Cage with you right now. So I'm going to set the scene for you. And I'll preface what I'm saying by saying that I'm being mostly facetious, uh, but the stress of what I'm about to describe to you has been very, very real. Back in April, my sweet little daughter was born, and wow, we are all deeply in love with her and can't imagine our lives without her. The months following her birth, up to and including right now, um, have been rife with postpartum anxiety. From your run-of-the-mill worries about, like, am I a good enough mom, or uh, waking up at night to make sure that she's doing okay, to the lesser-known but all-too-consuming concerns that my house is going to be swallowed by a sinkhole, or that I'm going to drive through the 95 tunnel and it's going to collapse on me while I'm in there. Near-crippling anxiety has been my constant companion these past seven months. Then, shortly after returning to work from my maternity leave, I found out that I was being downsized. While I have since found another job, and I'm grateful for that, my original job was so flexible, and it was perfect for a working mom. Giving up that flexibility has been a lot harder than I thought it would be. The loss of my job also came with financial uncertainty and a change in lifestyle, including, like, I have to be at work at 7.30 a.m., um, and so those early mornings seem much, much too early when you have a baby who is waking up at all hours of the night. And in my old job, I was working day in and day out with my two very best friends, and making friends, even though I like to do it, is really not my strong suit, so having to navigate turning new coworkers into friends has taken its toll. Add to that just the massive hit to my ego and the existential doubts that losing my job have stirred up. It's been a lot, to say the least. But it was all looking up until the end of October when the ills arrived. I know many of us are experiencing the ills right now, but if you're not and you're asking, what are the ills? Well, the ills are the onslaught of various illnesses that my family have been facing over the past six weeks, starting with RSV in two of my kids, then moving into two unknown, consecutive, long-lasting colds and viruses of some kind, and now culminating with pink eye and a double ear infection. Collectively, Trevor and I have had to take off over 11 days of work in the past seven weeks to deal with sick children. So you can see now maybe why pink eye was kind of the final straw, right? It's fitting then, in my mind, that the theme of this sermon is the winter solstice. We've been discussing the roots of so many of our Christmas traditions and celebrations this series, and with the winter solstice only three days away, it's the perfect time to address the elephant in the room, that soon we will be experiencing the darkest day of the year. I mean, the winter solstice is a day when darkness literally wins. Nearly two-thirds of the 24 hours we have will be dark. And while in the modern era we can alleviate some of that darkness with screens or electricity, the ability to gas up our cars and go somewhere that's brighter, historically that was not the case, right? For our predecessors, the winter solstice was a stark reminder that either one, 
the harvest had not been good and the winter was going to be crushing. Or two, the harvest had been good, but maybe next year's harvest wouldn't be and next winter would be crushing. To quote Wikipedia, which I was always taught when I was young was not a true source of information, but now somehow seems to be, I don't know. The winter solstice was immensely important because the people were economically dependent on monitoring the progress of the season. With a bad harvest, these would be famine months. So without current technology, without the ability to ship food from one place to another, the local yearly harvest was imperative to the survival of communities. The traditions that we've already discussed, like the Yule Log and Saturnalia, they were the culmination of the harvest, the celebration, and they were also a begging to the gods that next year's harvest would also be good. If you arrived at solstice without enough, there was a good chance that you or someone you loved would not live long enough to see the next one. So thanks for coming to my TED Talk about why winter and winter solstice are just the absolute worst. <laughs> no, I do think there's a lesson for us as followers of Jesus in the winter solstice, though. Things that we can learn about what it means to follow Jesus by looking at the longest day of the year. And the first is that darkness is inevitable. I know that's really good, feel-good feeling for the week before Christmas, but I don't want to sugarcoat it. Darkness is inevitable. It would be great if that wasn't true, but it is. And as if our own lives weren't proof enough of the fact, let's look at the history of the Jewish nation for further proof of concept. If you're unfamiliar with scripture this morning or the structure of the Bible itself, the Bible is split into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament tells us about creation. It tells us about Jewish history and Jewish law. It also includes significant books of Jewish poetry and prophecy. And in fact, the Old Testament ends with multiple books of prophecy. These books prophesy or predict the coming of a Messiah who will overturn nations, tear down kingdoms, and upend the world. They tell of miracles and might, and they're a beacon of hope to the Jewish people while they're in exile from Jerusalem. The last of these books of prophecy is a book called Malachi, and the very last verse of that book says, but also look ahead. I'm sending Elijah the prophet to clear the way for the big day of God, the decisive judgment day. He will convince parents to look after their children and children to look up to their parents. If they refuse, I'll come and put the land under a curse. And that's it. <laughs> that's how the book of Malachi ends. And if you're turning the page in the Bible, the next turn will take you into the New Testament, into the book of Matthew, into the story of Christmas. But what that page turn doesn't tell you is about all the dark, silent emptiness that fills that space. You see, between that last verse in Malachi and the first verse of Matthew, between the Old and New Testaments, nearly 400 years pass in history. And in those 400 years, lots of things happen for the Jewish people First, they're ruled by the Persians. Then Alexander the Great takes over, and they're ruled by the Greeks. Then Alexander the Great dies, and they're ruled sort of by these two subsects of the Greece, the Egyptians and the, or the Syrians. After that, there's a zealous sect of Judaism that rules for about 100 years. And then finally, Rome takes over. It's in this period of time of Roman rule that the book of Matthew begins. The point is that we, or I, I'm not the first person to experience a season of darkness. The Jews had been promised a Messiah and since then had been living in 400 years of waiting. 400 years. I don't know about you, but for myself, I can barely wait four minutes for most of the things that I want. 
So to ask an entire group of people to wait 400 years for the fulfillment of a promise seems to be asking a lot. But that's where we find the Jewish people at the beginning of the Christmas story, still waiting for some word, some sign, or some signal that the promise that they'd been given centuries before was going to come to fruition. If God's own chosen people were required to wait 400 years in the darkness, I think it's proof positive that darkness, like pain and struggle and hurt, or even just that simple day-to-day, death-by-a-thousand cuts that I described, that those things are inevitable for us as well, don't you? And if it weren't for the Christmas story, this message really would end here. Darkness is inevitable, and that's it. Because darkness is inevitable, we have to concoct ways to bring light into our lives. Things like the Yule Log or Saturnalia or any of the other plethora of solstice traditions around the world. Or if we're making it a little more modern, things like social media scrolling, drinking or sleeping or eating to excess, any of the ways that we use to bring short-lived light into our darkness. But the joy of Christmas and the beauty of Advent is that yes, darkness is inevitable, but we can also trust that light will always eventually shine into our darkness. There's a story in the Bible of a man named Simeon that I think illustrates this tension of light and dark really well. Simeon's story is technically a Christmas story, but he's sort of a lesser-known character, so in case you're not familiar, here's a little bit of background. Simeon was a Jewish man who we meet in the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter. Most people assume that he was old because the passage does talk about his eventual death, but we don't actually know how old he was. We do know, though, that he was waiting for the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that we talked about, the promises of a Savior who were going to come and rescue Israel which means that he'd been taught about those promises from his parents and his grandparents and his great-grandparents and that all of those people had been waiting for the fulfillment of this promise as well. In Luke 2, which takes place about six weeks after Jesus was born, we read this. In Jerusalem at the time, there was a man, Simeon by name, a good man, a man who lived in the prayerful expectancy of help for Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. The Holy Spirit had shown him that he would see the Messiah of God before he died. Led by the Spirit, he entered the temple. As the parents of the child, Jesus brought him in to carry out the rituals of the law. Simeon took him into his arms and blessed God. For a little additional context, the rituals of the law that are being explained there, it's like a new Jewish baby is to be presented in the temple 40 days after their birth. The temple was in Jerusalem, and I did a little Google mapping. It's about a two-hour walk from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. While it wouldn't have been ideal for Mary and Joseph to walk two hours with an infant, it's definitely doable. The passage tells us that the Spirit led Simeon to go to the temple that day. So we know from other accounts of Jesus' birth that shepherds had seen Jesus and run out to tell a bunch of people. So we don't know if Simeon sort of had an idea, like, hey, maybe this thing is happening and that's why I'm being led to go to the temple. Or if he just sort of had a prompting, like, you know, I'm going to go to the temple today. But either way, when he got there, Simeon finally got to see him the fulfillment of hundreds of years of waiting and the answer to so many problems that Jewish people were facing. It was like seeing the sun after the solstice, if you'll forgive the simile. And Simeon says in this moment, God, you can now release your servant. Release me in peace as you promised. With my own eyes, I've seen your salvation. It's now out in the open for everyone to see. A God revealing light to the non-Jewish nations and of glory for your people Israel. So in the story of Simeon, we can see that, yes, darkness is inevitable, but light always 
eventually shines into darkness. Isn't that great news? It's really, really good news, and it's definitely worth celebrating, but I want to add a little asterisk here. And it's because I think there's a real danger, especially in Christianity, that followers of Jesus somehow think that being a follower of Jesus, right, of receiving the promise, as Simeon did on that day, somehow means that darkness is going to be banished from our lives. That once the light shines in, darkness is gone for good. So I just kind of want to kill that lie this Christmas season because then, as today, light and dark exist in the same breath. Light shines into the darkness, but it doesn't completely make the darkness disappear. We read that right after Simeon makes this proclamation, right? I've finally seen the fulfillment of the promise. I can die in peace. Hundreds of years of prophecy are being fulfilled in this baby. We read this. Jesus' father and mother were speechless with surprise at these words. Simeon went on to bless them, which sounds great, right? And said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I am sorry, but if I was Mary, I would just yeet that blessing right on back to Simeon. Even 2,000 years ago, people didn't know how to talk to a new mom, did they? And he might as well just smacked her across the face with like, oh, you've got your hands full, don't ya? Or like, um, just wait till he's older. It's even harder then, right? Like, a sword is going to pierce my soul because of my little tiny baby? No, no thank you. You can just take that blessing right on back. But that's kind of the point, right? Even in that moment of the fulfillment of a promise, the moment that Simeon and all of Israel have been waiting for, there's already a shadow. There's already a darkness, an indication that all will not always be well, at least not in this world. Simeon here is hinting in this blessing at the eventual death of Jesus when Jesus is pierced through his side with a sword. It's a moment in time when the world physically goes dark and existentially the darkest moment that many of Jesus' followers had ever faced. It was for them the, the death of the promise that Simeon was seeing that day. So the lesson of Simeon really ends up being sort of this dark-to-light cycle. Darkness is inevitable. Light will always eventually shine into the darkness, but darkness will also always cast a shadow onto earthly light. I mean, the truth of it all is that dark and light always coexist. It's not a truth that I love. <laughs> I mean, I wish that seasons were truly just seasons, right, that we could know this is when my suffering will be, and this is when my joy will be, and that all joy could be devoid of all pain. But that's just not how it is. I mean, even with Jesus' birth, the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of light, Jewish people still had to wait many years for that baby to turn into a man who could fulfill the promise of salvation. Dark and light coexist. And if you're at all like me, you're tempted to just see all the negative aspects of that truth. It might feel like you can't ever really enjoy anything because darkness persists. Even the good stuff gets shadowed, so what's the point? Every party, every present, every laugh is colored by the 24-hour news cycle, by that devastating phone call, or even just by that annoying coworker. But as we kind of land the plane, I want to challenge that line of thinking with just two next steps. The first is that rather than to lament that in the light there is still darkness, that we could learn to rejoice, that in the darkness, there is still light. If we go back to the idea of solstice, 
Our predecessors had a lot to worry about during the winter months, but there were also things to celebrate. Wikipedia also tells us that by solstice, most cattle were slaughtered, so they would not have to be fed during the winter. So it was almost the only time of year when a plentiful supply of fresh meat was available. The majority of wine and beer made during the year was finally fermented and ready for drinking at this time. So, I mean, meat and wine, that's not too bad for solstice, right? Or we can think of solstice in our modern world. On Wednesday, while we mourn the lack of light, our brothers and sisters in the southern hemisphere will be celebrating their summer solstice, the day of the year that brings them the most daylight. In my own story, I can see this dark light coexistence really clearly, and I, I apologize because I know I tell this story every time I'm up on this stage, but nearly seven years ago in 2016, I gave birth to my second son six weeks and two days early. Instead of getting to hold my baby in my arms, he was whisked off to the NICU immediately where he spent the first 24 days of his life. To say that this time in my life was challenging would be a massive understatement. In fact, it's, it's burned so deeply into my brain that I can still remember the smell of the hospital's parking garage stairwell. It smelled like, I don't know if this makes sense, but it smelled like moldy Tootsie Rolls. So, 10 days into his stay and with no end in sight, I received a Facebook message from an old friend of mine named Becky, and I have her permission to share this. Uh, Becky and I had been super close in college. I'd been a bridesmaid in her wedding in 2008, but over the years we had drifted apart, and that's because Becky and her husband Kyle had been struggling with infertility for eight years by the time I had my second son. So you can imagine the rift that that could cause in a friendship. I want to read to you the message that I got from Becky that night. <clears throat> she said, hey there, I'm probably going to cry just because this is me. Just wanted to say congrats on the birth of Branch. He's so sweet. I'm sure your days have been busy trying to juggle two babes when one is still in the hospital. I can only imagine. I wanted to call you, but I wasn't sure if a phone call in this season would be a welcome break or just one more thing to respond to. Anyhow, I wanted to let you in on an update for our family. The big news is that Kyle and I have started the adoption process last spring, and we were matched with a birth mother this fall. We're planning to welcome a baby boy into our home this May. We hoped that we'd learn the gender sometime around Christmas, so we planned to announce then. However, in the interim, I learned in early December that I was pregnant. Yes, you read that correctly. We were shocked. I seriously had given up on the dream of ever having biological kids, and I was totally fine with that. In fact, I'd been celebrating the fact that I would have wine at my baby shower for the adoption. God sure has a sense of humor. Needless to say, we were worried then that the adoption could change. But last week, we were finally able to share with the birth mom, and she's excited for us and still on board. Praise God. So our plan is to continue with the adoption in May, and then I am due in August. It has been crazy. Anyhow, we love you guys lots, and we're praying for you during this time. I have never before or since then felt the tension of dark and light when I did, or as I did when I read that message. Like, the joy I felt when I read that, it's the kind of thing you can make millions off of if you could bottle it up and sell it. It was, it was palpable. And yet, at the very same moment, three feet away from me, my own little baby was struggling to eat and to stay warm, living in a little plastic box miles from his home. But in one of the darkest moments of my life, I was grateful for Becky's light because her joy and her happiness shone a light into the darkness that I was experiencing. It didn't take that darkness away. It didn't even change it at all. Everything was exactly the same, but it did help. 
If we can learn to rejoice in the light that we can find, even when we're in darkness, then we can face our own personal solstices boldly. We can embrace the tension of light and dark that we will inevitably face. So if you've come into this room and you are in darkness today, if you're facing a loss, you're facing heartbreak, or you're just feeling overwhelmed or underwater by the millions of things that are being asked of you every day, it's possible that you can find some area of light somewhere in your story. And I encourage you this morning to, to identify and name those things to God and to yourself. The second thing that we can do is to begin to see all earthly light as simply a shadow of true light. Even though the story I just shared about Becky and that moment in the NICU is one of my favorite stories to tell, the truth is that at the end of the day, Becky's pregnancy, her labor, her kids, none of those things were nor are they perfect. In fact, when Becky had her three-month-old son who she adopted and gave birth, her own son ended up in the NICU for several days after he was born. Everything, all of that light, are and were broken in some way, even with all the joy that they brought. And that's because the truth is that there's only one light that cannot be overshadowed by darkness. In John chapter 1, we read what came into existence at Christmas time was life, and the life was light to live by. The life light blazed out of the darkness, and the darkness couldn't put it out. Living with the constant tension of darkness and light would be exhausting if we didn't realize or didn't recognize that all the good that we experience in this life is just a shadow of the true light that Jesus provides. What we see as light now will seem almost as dark in comparison to the absolute and perfect love, joy, hope, and peace that Jesus provides. Now, the beauty of Christmas, of course, is that that hope is not just for the world to come. It is for this world as well. Like we read in the book of John, like Katie read to us, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Even right here and right now, with all the darkness that does exist, Jesus shines light in our dark places and gives us what we need to keep moving forward. But Advent isn't just about hope for this world. It points us to an eternal hope as well, where we will one day be forever in the presence of true light. In Revelation 21, we read again from John about his vision of heaven. And he describes a place that needs no sun or moon because the light of Jesus' glory is bright enough to shine everywhere. And in that same vision, John tells us this. I heard a voice thunder from the throne. Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women. They're his people. He's their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death is gone for good. Tears, gone. Crying, gone. Pain, gone. All the first order of things gone. The enthroned continued, look, I am making everything new. So in the first book that John wrote for us, he tells us that Jesus became flesh and blood and he moved in with us. He brought light into our darkness. And in another book he wrote, he's telling us that he's going to do it again. But this time it won't just be like lighting a candle in a dark room. The darkness will be banished. It will be gone forever. Light and dark won't coexist anymore because darkness simply won't exist. We can hold on to hope here and now because of the light that Jesus has already brought in coming to the earth and because we are looking forward with joy to a true light that has no shadow side, a year with no winter solstice. We're going to move now into a time of communion. And as I was reflecting on it, communion really is the perfect picture of the tension of light and dark 
that the solstice shows us. In what seemed to be the darkest moment in history, the moment that Jesus died, he brought to us, the people he loves, the light of his salvation. The band is going to play a song, and after we pray, we invite you to partake with us. And as we take the gluten-free cracker and reflect on Jesus' body broken for us, and as we drink the juice and remember Jesus' blood shed for us, may we trust that his light is brighter than any of the ways that we invent to light our own path. And may we invite his light to shine into the darkness, both on this winter solstice and every day after, as we wait to live with him forever in his true and perfect light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we really are grateful that you brought us light, Lord. Light for this world when everything seems dark and light forever when there will be no more darkness. We need that light. We confess that to you this morning, Lord, that um, we're in need of your light. God, we pray that this Christmas season um, we would be able to see light in dark places, Lord, and also that we would be able to shine light on other people in their dark places, God that you would use us as a beacon of light to others. Jesus, you came to earth to die for us, and you promised to let us be with you forever, and we're so, so grateful that you came as a baby on that Christmas just because you loved us so much. God, may we pour that love out to others and remember it this morning as we take communion. In your name.